Why does God choose to work through people who don't even acknowledge him? Surely there are faithful, available for assignment, the usual suspects seeking commission. Isn't it lonely at times, playing music with living instruments that don't even seem to know you're holding them? This is a story about calling, and it's a story about strength and weakness. But not weakness that showcases strength. Those tales abound in scripture, but this is not one of them, not really. This is a story about strength that showcases weakness, sets it in sharp relief, makes you sigh for the squandered potential of a moment, the squandered potential of a calling, of a life. I'm Justin Gearhart. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. He wants her, doesn't care that she's a Philistine. Sure, they're longtime enemies of the Israelites, but what do those politics have to do with him? His parents are going to hate it. But look at her. She lights up the whole town. It's like the sun doesn't set in Timnah. She's the one. A young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. He tells his mother and father when he gets home, over dinner maybe, his mother's forehead still glistening from the preparation of the meal. At the sound of these words, his mother's eyes and his father's brim with obvious disappointment and frustration. But he doubles down. I want to marry her. Get her for me. It's obviously not a request. His parents push back, though. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry? They ask. Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? Get her for me, he insists, glaring at them. Confident in his victory, Samson swipes a piece of bread through his stew, perhaps, shoves it in his mouth and shrugs his shoulders. She looks good to me. And with that, the stage is set. Yahweh will use Samson to disrupt the status quo between the Philistines and the Israelites, an abusive relationship in which Israel's neighbors to the west have become the overlords of the descendants of Abraham. Israel seems content in their station, resigned to it, but Yahweh is ready for a change. The Philistines have no idea what's ahead, neither for that matter does Samson. Samson's parents accompany him to Timnah to secure the woman he has his eye on. He knew they would. They nag and complain the whole way, surely, trying to talk him out of this union. 
if not a good Israelite girl, fine, then at least a different breed of pagan, anything other than the uncircumcised Philistines. How many times have they told him about where he came from? a child given to Manoah and his barren wife by Yahweh himself to be set aside for divine purposes as an avowed Nazarite. Yahweh must have something in mind for you. And surely it does not involve becoming one flesh with a pagan woman. Samson's heard it all before. Evidently, he grows tired of his parents' company during the five-mile walk to Timnah and, upon seeing a vineyard, tells them he'll meet up with them later and heads toward the wine, a beverage expressly forbidden by his Nazarite vow. But right now, a glass or two of wine just feels right. He walks alone, his parents' voices well out of earshot. Much better. But he's not alone. Yahweh is watching. And Yahweh decides it's time to move the plot along. Suddenly, the grapes on the vines just within view, 500 pounds of golden fur, ivory teeth, and unbreakable claws burst from the foliage. The enormous predator runs eight steps in less than a second and launches through the air toward Samson, its vast mane eclipsing the sun. In an instant, the lion has pinned him to the ground, eyes fixed, jaws stretched, ready to close around Samson's neck. But as the shock dissipates, all at once, Samson feels a surge of power course through his body. Without thinking, he yanks his arms free and grabs the lion by its open mouth, his fingers grasping each jaw just between its deadly canine teeth. Snarling, Samson wrenches the animal's head sideways and begins to pull his hands in opposite directions. The jaws of the lion stretch apart easily. One centimeter, then another, and another, its eyes widen as it realizes Samson's grip is unbreakable. In seconds, the sound of bodies rustling in the grass, the sound of a lion and a man growling, is joined by the sound of flesh and muscle tearing, the sound of bone snapping like celery, the sound of an animal gurgling as its windpipe is ripped open. The lion stumbles to its feet, staggering away from its prey-turned predator, its lower jaw dangling ten inches from the rest of its face, tethered by a bloody mess of tendons and skin, its bright pink tongue a flag lowered to half-mast. While it gasps for breath, Samson scrambles to his feet, grabs a rock, perhaps, and pounces, stone meeting skull in a crushing blow, the lion instantly falling limp. When he meets up with his parents, Samson tells them nothing. It would just get them going again. In Timnah, Samson finally gets to speak with the woman he's chosen. He was right. She's perfect. Everything he's been looking for. They talk, and he smiles, laughs, swoons even, weak in the knees. Yes, she's the one. 
They travel back home, Samson confident he's made a great choice, his parents not so sure. But Samson's their boy, and they can't say no to him. Arrangements are made for the dowry and the wedding and its accompanying feasts, and before long, it's time to return to Timnah. On their way, they pass the road Samson took toward the vineyard last time. He tells his parents he'll catch up with them in the city and heads back to the place where the encounter happened. Why does he do this? Is it simply a vague curiosity? Or is it something deeper? After all, what happened there was, well, it was bizarre. He's always been strong, but something different came over him as he wrestled that lion. Something mysterious. He may not have told anyone, but Samson hasn't been able to stop thinking about it. Perhaps as he returns to the place it happened, some part of him hopes to somehow relive the sensations he felt there, to find some clue as to why what happened happened. Meanwhile, Yahweh has been preparing a moment for Samson, a vignette, a curious scene for him to ponder. Samson spots the lion's carcass by the vineyard, lying in just the place he left it. But as he approaches, there's something strange about it. The process of decomposition has been accelerated. The big cat's body has been hollowed out, and it's dry. It should be full of flies and maggots, but instead, there's a hive of bees. Gold, striped with black, shining gossamer wings. A community throbbing with activity. Life inside a place of death. And honey, gobs of it. Sweetness amidst rot. It's what Yahweh longs to create with Israel. His people situated among the nations who do not know him. Light in a dark world that needs illumination. The honey, though, it's so tempting. Samson, of course, has taken the Nazarite vow. In addition to abstaining from alcohol, he's not to touch corpses, even corpses with honey inside them. But look at it. He reaches his muscled arm toward the hive, swipes away the bees, and breaks off a chunk of the comb. Holding it aloft, Samson crushes it between his fingers, his mouth open wide to claim his golden, tainted harvest. This is not what Yahweh had in mind. What does Yahweh have in mind, exactly? What strategy, what master plan might Yahweh invite Samson into? What would he say to Samson, if not for Samson's disregard of the vow? If not for Samson's refusal to draw near? This, it seems, will remain a mystery. When he meets up with his parents, he gives them some of the honeycomb. Under Yahweh's law, a Nazarite's contact with dead bodies is especially off-limits, but the prohibition extends, actually, to all Jews. If they knew where this prize had come from, 
they'd never eat it. But Samson doesn't think to tell them that. In Timnah, Samson's father makes final preparations for the wedding while Samson throws the customary groom's feast, a bachelor party of sorts at the bride's parents' home. It's a feast that's less about eating and more about drinking, really. An invitation-only seven-day bender attended by men who know the groom and the bride, mostly the bride in this case, given that it's held in her hometown. But when his soon-to-be wife's parents get a look at Samson, they can't help but notice he looks especially strong. Given the tensions between the two families' countries, strong means dangerous. So in order to prevent an altercation between Samson and the Philistine men in attendance, Samson's in-laws add a few names to the guest list. 30, to be precise, dyed-in-the-wool Timnah boys to be Samson's special companions and make sure he doesn't cause any trouble. The first night of the feast, Samson looks around at the guests, most of whom he doesn't know. His in-laws even provided him with a best man. <laughs> Philistine women are one thing. Philistine men, he'd rather do without entirely. And these 30 bodyguards, what a joke. Let's see, how to stir the pot a bit without an altercation. <sighs> a battle of wits. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson says to them. If you solve it during these seven days of the celebration, I'll give you 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of real evening wear. Is he saying they could stand some new clothes? All right, the men agree. Let's hear your riddle. Samson thinks a minute as the room grows silent. His thoughts wander back as they have in every quiet moment over the last couple of days, to what happened at the vineyard. What a curious... Samson smiles. Out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Applause and raised glasses are offered, perhaps in response to a worthy challenge, a solid-sounding riddle for them to chew on for a while, and by which to beat the pants off this cocky Israelite. But three days later, Samson's Philistine guests still haven't figured it out. They're starting to get nervous. Few things are more expensive than clothing. And 30 outfits. They rack their brains, sift the party venue for clues. Surely it has to do with something here. Otherwise, he'd be cheating. <laughs> well, two can play that game. On the fourth day, they go to Samson's bride. Did you invite us to this party just to make us poor? Entice your husband to explain the riddle to us or we'll burn down your father's house with you in it. Well, that escalated quickly. And what does Yahweh think about this relentless one-upmanship? human after misguided human striving to demonstrate their strength and only proving their weakness. The more flamboyantly they flex, 
the more unignorable their failings become. Vengeance betrays a lack of self-control. Violence reveals fear. If this is the way they insist on behaving, if this is the chaos they crave, then Yahweh will at least direct the chaos. You don't love me. Tears roll down the cheeks of Samson's wife. He sighs. You hate me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even given the answer to my father or mother, Samson replies. Why should I tell you? There is, of course, a very good answer to this question. More than one, honestly. But she doesn't tell Samson about the Philistines' threat. Is she afraid that this will only escalate things further? If he won't share the riddle's solution with her, surely he won't forfeit the contest and give it to them. But maybe if she really leans in, doubles down on the pressure to tell her, she can pass along the answer to the Philistines. The next time Samson sees his bride, she's crying. And the next, and the next. Night after night, as the feast continues, she's in tears, nagging him to unveil the riddle, enticing him to tell her his secret. She's so beautiful, and so persistent. Fine, he says on the seventh day, and he tells her. As soon as she has an opportunity to steal away, she finds the Philistine men and gives them the answer. That afternoon, they come to Samson. We solved the riddle, they tell him. Oh, really? And what do you think the answer is? Out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. What's sweeter than honey? And what's stronger than a lion? Impossible. He intentionally chose something they'd never... How could they... Her. What did they do to get it out of her? Gloating, maybe, the men remind Samson at this point, you owe us some clothing. Enraged, Samson glares at them. If you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. And then, all at once, Samson feels a surge of power course through his body. Without thinking, he storms out of the room and heads 20 miles, likely on horseback, to Ashkelon, a principal city of the Philistines, a symbol of their power. There, he heads for the gates where the leaders gather, perhaps, or for the marketplace, somewhere with plenty of people. And then, inhuman strength surging inside of him, Samson heads for one of the well-dressed men and kills him. Before anyone can react, he turns to another and strikes him down. In seconds, a third man lies at Samson's feet. At this point, surely the men of Ashkelon are grabbing for swords, daggers, sticks, whatever's close, and moving towards Samson to stop him. But everyone who gets close is cut down by the Israelite. Five men. Ten. Seventeen. One body after another falls limp until 30 men lie dead on the ground. Samson dares anyone else to come near while he moves from one victim to the next, stripping them of their clothing. With the people of Ashkelon, 
the supposed oppressors of the meager Israelites. Standing there, dumbstruck, Samson secures the garments to his horse's back, mounts up, and gallops off in the direction of Timnah. Finally, his horse foaming with sweat, Samson rides up to his in-law's home, jumps down, and bursts into the last night of his wedding feast with his enormous arms full of dead Philistines' clothing. There, he says, throwing the blood-stained clothes at the feet of his two and a half dozen bodyguards, his father-in-law's face painted with shock. And with that, Samson turns, stomps out of the room, and heads back to Israel, alone. While Samson's gone, his father-in-law makes an executive decision and gives his daughter as a wife to Samson's best man. He will regret that decision. Back home, Samson tries to cool off, tries perhaps to forget the girl he almost married. Is he bothered? by what he did in Ashkelon? Does he wonder what came over him? Not just the rage, he's always been hot-tempered, but the strength, the staggering power he demonstrated that day. Like he was a god. The same as in Timnah with the lion. He can still feel its hot breath on his skin, still see each whisker, still hear the tearing sound. Who can do things like this? Samson holds his head in his hands, maybe, as he thinks, his fingers pulling his long black hair flat against his scalp. The other part of his vow. You're never to cut your hair, Samson. His mother's told him that since he was a boy. A Nazarite? What does that mean, really? What's the point? Why did Yahweh... This must be why. He's known it, surely, deep down. But some of the things you know, you don't want to admit. Yahweh wants to use Samson to rescue Israel from those bullies to the west, like he did with Ehud or Deborah or Gideon. But Gideon wasn't in love with a Midianite, was he? This is different. Israel can find another general. Samson's got a bride to claim. She's his, after all. The dowry was paid, a betrothal is essentially a marriage, and he didn't suffer through that feast for nothing. All that was left was to consummate the marriage. Well, now's just as good a time as any. And so in May, when the wheat fields are golden, the heads of grain heavy with potential, Samson sets out to visit his wife. He can't come empty-handed, of course, after all this time. He needs a gesture. Something romantic. Something like a goat. No, a young goat. She'll love that. But when Samson arrives at her house, he's met not by his bride, but by her father. You can't go in, the man tells him. Can't go in. She's his wife. Your wife, he replies. You left. I thought you must hate her, so I gave her to your companion. My companion? The veins in Samson's neck begin to throb. Not wanting another Ashkelon, her father says, Look, how about her younger sister? Isn't she more beautiful? Please, take her instead. No comment from the sister. 
But Samson can't see anything but his bride with someone else. This time, he seethes, I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to the Philistines. Jackals are not easy to catch. Capturing one is a feat, to be sure. Catching two is worthy of boasting about. But catching 300? Well, that's another thing entirely. Miraculous, most would say. But this is somehow exactly what Samson does. Snares or stalks or ambushes 25 dozen jackals. Hundreds of them, corralled in one giant mass of upright ears and panting tongues and golden fur, the centerpiece of a bizarre, ingenious plan. By the light of a fire, Samson digs through the basket he's brought out here to the grain fields of Philistia. Pushing aside stick after stick, each of them tipped with pitch, he grabs the twine. Back to the jackals. Samson grabs two at a time and, using the twine, ties their tails together. As soon as each pair is lashed, he reaches into the basket and then ties a stick to the tails. There is much barking and howling. And biting, surely. Hours later, a full day perhaps has passed and night has fallen once again. The job is done. Almost. Samson grabs one last black-tipped stick from the basket, shoves it into the fire, and as he turns each pair of jackals loose, touches the flame to the torch between their tails. The animals race away, one frantic duo after another, fire dancing to frenetic yelps as the torches bounce through the fields. In moments, of course, this illuminated choreography sets one field after another ablaze. One pair of jackals, at least, finds itself playing the frenzied tug-of-war amidst the piles of sheaves. The wheat harvest becomes a bonfire. Samson's smile flashes in the golden light. He's not even half done. Ten more torches spirited away. Twenty after that. Eventually, they end up in the olive groves, then the vineyards. The fire races greedily across the Philistines' farms. Someone sees the glow in the distance, sounds the alarm, but they're too late. It's all on fire. Who did this? They cry into the night. Samson, someone says. Surely it was Samson. His father-in-law gave Samson's wife to be married to his best man. He did what? Who would provoke someone like this? Fools. In seconds, a mob is headed to Timnah. Within the hour, Samson's wife and father-in-law are being dragged outside and lashed down. Enraged men and women throw anything flammable on top of them, and then one torch after another is tossed on the pile. The flames stretch across the mound, fire feasting on the screaming man and his daughter. Their blistering skin turns red, and then black. Yahweh resolute and anguished, does not intervene. Less than three minutes later, Samson's wife is dead.
This is not the end of the violence. Not even the beginning of the end. When Samson finds out what the Philistines have done, he vows revenge and goes on a rampage, killing many people. Yahweh will not endorse this vendetta, though, will not provide his telltale surge of power, will not come alongside Samson in this moment as the source of his strength. But Samson will manage to do it anyway, driven by his own fury. It's harder that way, messier, and more dangerous. Yahweh will watch as Samson's forced to take refuge from the incensed Philistines, living in a cave for months, alone. There is much more to Samson's story. More intrigue, more violence, more love, more death. But most of it will be marked by a strange distance from Yahweh. Strange in its unnecessariness. For a man chosen from the womb to bring freedom to the people of Israel, Samson will think precious little about Israel or her God, and quite a lot about Samson. Yahweh will be saddened by this, even if he's not surprised. And Yahweh will work through Samson anyway, to jostle the Hebrews out of their complacency and to punish the Philistines for their oppressive ways. But he will have rather done all of that alongside Samson, rather than despite him. Alas. Hey, Justin here. I hope you loved The Source and the Fury. Samson's life has long fascinated me. If you've read it before, it's probably fascinated you. I'm already looking forward to telling other parts of his life story in future seasons. Um, if you'd like some behind the scenes stuff about this episode, you can sign up for the latest. It's an email I send twice a month with things I think are interesting. Uh, the next edition, in fact, goes out tomorrow. And if you're wondering how somebody actually gets honey from a wild beehive, I've got a crazy cool video for you. Uh, if you're wondering if I ever think about recutting some of these scenes to some very different music styles than what I use here, I let you in on that. Uh, if you are wondering about how I feel about Samson and who I would cast in the film version of this story, I make a case for my choice and a runner-up. And unrelated to Samson, if you're wondering where my family and I are moving this week as we work our way slowly around the world, that's in there too. And I'll give you a hint, it's one of the most gorgeous places on the planet. All that and more is coming your way tomorrow morning if you subscribe to the latest. It's free, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, it's delightful. Plus, you can reply to that email and we can say hi to each other. Nice, right? You can sign up on my website. Link's right there in the show notes of this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time. <laughs>